Welcome to Feminist Question Time, brought to you by Women's Declaration International, the leading global organization defending women's sex-based rights against the threats posed by gender identity ideology. There is more information on the website womensdeclaration.com, where you will find our Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, which has been signed by 37,460 people from 160 countries, and it is supported by 518 organizations. We have many volunteer activists, including country contacts from every continent, engaged in defending women's rights. Please join us. You can also become a member of WGDI to help our work by volunteering or donating. Please get in touch with us at info at womensdeclaration.com or via your country contact on the website womensdeclaration.com at the section country info. And now I'm going to introduce our speakers. We will have Sue England. She's uh, a British um, lawyer living in, 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 in Germany. And she will uh, tell us what's the, what is the Convention on the Elimination of All Dic Discrimination Against Women. It's a, a acronym is CEDO that was uh, um, uh, approved by the UN in 1980. Um, we also will have Eva Gastañaga from Peru, and she will uh, um, she will tell us about prostitution in, in Peru. Uh, she will bring us an objective analysis of the problem of prostitution, reviewing the two positions that exist on it, and finally breaking down the problematic background of this practice in Peru. And last but not least, we will have Anne Kalvik from Norway. She will um, give a, a talk uh, titled Gender, Faith and Norway, the most the world's most equal country. In this talk, she will outline how Norway has the most extreme gender legislation in the world and how it affects our society, what has happened to women, children, and vulnerable groups of people, as well as academia and all institutions, administrations, and political parties in this ideological and also quite, quite religious-like situation, who are responsible, who are opposing the current craze, and how they are met. We will introduce Sue England. She's um, a lawyer that specializes in human rights law. Sue has lived and worked in several countries, including the UK, Belgium, and Germany. And to help ensure that women understand their rights, uh, Sue uh, does courses on human rights law for non-lawyers, which are very helpful and very much appreciated for many women. So thank you, Sue, for that. And um, over to you. So I was here last week as well for another short presentation. And then I was actually doing the UK Human Rights Act. But now I'm going global because we're going to talk about a UN human rights convention called CEDAW. And I will spend 10, 15 minutes just going through the basics, which I think, you know, for some people will be a refresher and other people will be something new for them. But it's all it's all important and interesting. Um, my human rights training sessions will be starting again sometime uh, in this spring. Uh, but I'll I'll send around the information to that about everybody. But I don't have a, a date at the moment. So let's look at CEDAW, as it's always called C E D A W. And it's called that because it has a very very long name, which nobody you know can bother to read out most of the time. But it's a, a human rights convention that the UN did in 1980. And it's called the Convention on the Elimination of All Discrimination Against Women. So what is that? That's about 10 different words. But anyway, boiling down to CEDAW. And so this is from the UN. And the UN started making human rights conventions immediately after the Second World War. The one that everybody's heard of was the Universal Declaration on Human Rights in 1948. And then they moved on to other areas. And it took until 1980 to get round to look at women specifically Obviously, the earlier conventions were supposed to cover all human beings. They're called human rights because you have them 
because you're a human. But they began to look at specific areas. And in 1980, it was women. In 1990, it was children. Later on, for example, there's another convention about uh, disability. But we'll just focus on the women's one. So this is where, in the 1970s, political action, women working for women, were pushing the UN to look at all the issues that concerned women and form, produce a new human rights convention. It's built around discrimination. And discrimination works by in human rights field by saying you shouldn't be discriminated against compared to others. So obviously in this case, this is as women, you shouldn't be treated worse than men. They are the comparator group, and that reflects the reality of the world that we live in. There are two sexes, and traditionally, in most parts of the world, building on these two biological sexes, most societies created structures which put men considerably in, in a considerably better position than women. So women are saying you're discriminating against us because we are disadvantaged to men. Now, the next important thing about this convention was that it's an asymmetric convention. I said before, human rights is for all humans. You have them because you're a human, a member of the human species. Well, here they said men and women are in somewhat different positions. And the rights holders for these new rights in this convention are going to be women of all ages. So in fact, it covers women and girls, even though it's it's not in the title, okay? So all women humans shouldn't be discriminated against compared to male humans. And women are the rights holders in this convention. So they went through in detail and set out all sorts of things which are necessary in human rights legislation to try and improve the circumstances of people. In this case, women compared to men. So political rights, rights to health, rights to vote, rights to take part in the political process as well as simply voting, um, rights within, say, the family to be treated equally to men, some rights for women around their childbearing, um, the necessi necessity of childbearing. So treating that as a special circumstance for women, that they are the only women, people who can have children and they need special protection and help from us all, both before the birth and also while they're breastfeeding, for example. So this is our very, very important UN convention focusing on women and obviously I'm not going to start going through the whole thing but you can go and find it I'm sure you can find it easily on any search engine you want to look at maybe you want to go and look at some organizations are producing sort of like simplified texts which can be particularly useful if you want to sort of get into it from at the beginning, rather than reading every detail in this text. Now, how is this made then? By a sort of semi-democratic process, women lobbying all the countries in the world who are the members of the United Nations. And they are the organisations which decide this text and voted on it and brought it into effect. So now it's a legal text and it covers every country in the world which has signed up to it. And that's most countries in the world. There's about 194 actually operating countries in the world. There's a few extra ones who are not really haven't really got their act together. But most countries in the world have signed up to this convention, so you, your country, should be on this list.
Now, the big exemption, exception is the United States. The United States has never signed up to this Human Rights Convention. And in fact, they've never signed up to the one on children's rights either. And so for people beaming in from America, you know, that causes all sorts of complications about this. But it's true. You, your government has ne none of your governments have, have ever decided to put a, to put an American signature on the on this document. Okay. The one also sort of notable exception on it is that at this stage in the 1970s, it didn't include any specific um, text about violence against women, which, you know, is interesting in the terms of the history of, you know, the improvements in women's rights and, and lives. No, this isn't specifically acknowledged. But what's happened since then is that there are various UN bodies of experts who are supposed to supervise this convention and go round on a sort of rotor every four or five years asking countries who've signed up to report to them on how they're getting on with implementing and improving the situation for women in their countries under this convention. So what happens is, there's, you know, there's a time schedule and the UN committees of experts start to look into the situation, but also they will accept reports from NGOs or women's organisations or anyone in particular, you know, who wants to say, I want to tell these UN experts what's going on in my country in practice, and obviously to point out deficiencies and problems. And the UN will then listen to that. They will also have a report from the country itself, which will be saying, of course, we're doing lots and lots of things, you know, we're really good. Um, and then they, they issue a final report. The UN experts issue a report, and they will be giving you a reasonably good run over of how things are going in that country and pointing out problems and urging the country to do better. They don't have any power to force the country to do better, but the fact that this is all public and other people can read it obviously has some impact because the country is being criticised in public by an organisation which is supposed to be global and independent. Okay. So some of you from different countries will have been involved in putting in what they call these shadow reports to this UN committee that looks after uh, this convention. It's the same system for other human rights conventions as well. So that is where we are at the moment. And apart from a lot of reports from the UN and pressure by women and then at the UN to actually take violence against women seriously, there haven't been any changes to the text of this convention since 1980. Now, one issue comes up which is that the trans cult is very, very keen to somehow include women, uh, sorry, men, <laughs> in this convention. And lawyers, committees, you know, political actors have been talking about this for some time. And I look at some of their stuff. Now, what they would love to do is somehow say that men who call themselves women should suddenly become women under this convention. It's for eliminating discrimination against women, but somehow, mysteriously, the word women in this convention 
um, includes them, even though there's nothing in this convention about, you know, along those lines at all. Well, that's not going to work because a fundamental rule of law is that you make laws with clearly understood words that everybody can understand and thus you can operate a law. If you make a law for the protection of chickens that live in big battery cages, you can't come along one day and suddenly say, we've just decided that the word chicken covers rabbits. So therefore, rabbits who are living in cages in this country have to say, you know, get counted in under this piece of legislation. You have to specifically change it. And that would mean going back to the countries which control this convention. They would have to change the text and they would all have they would have to vote on it as well. And it's very difficult getting all these different countries in the world to be binding votes on these things. So that is at the moment absolutely stalled. And when you read, uh, you know, cult documents and proposals, they admit that themselves. This is not a sensible thing to do. There is also another basic rule that normally you're not taking rights away from people. If you remember, this was done when the Istanbul, when Turkey came out of the Istanbul Convention against on violence against women, and this caused you know a huge amount of distress and shock. But it it was because it was unusual. So, by their own weird logic, they have to point out that if you say, well, any man who calls himself a woman should be included as a woman under CEDAW, the logic would be that any woman who's calling herself a man would be excluded from CEDAW. So those women would cease to have the protection of women given to them under this convention. And that is a little bit of a difficulty, isn't it? Because it follows their own logic. You can somehow change sex by just what you say. But if a man can, is allowed to change sex to say, I'm a woman, and we'll treat Cedar like that, well, that means any woman who said she's a man bounced out. She no longer, she no longer has these protections. But they will keep they keep on chewing away at this. And as we know, there are certain bodies within the UN that are captured. And certain bodies in the UN who are spending a lot of time and effort on this and producing reports about pushing the trans cause. There's also a particularly one many bodies, but one important one is called ILGA, International Lesbian and Gay Association for the four letters in the acronym. In fact, they have a much longer name and they are completely trans-captured. They have an awful lot of money and they're also very active at the UN. So you often get their people producing reports, popping up, uh, you know, and appearing at conferences and things like that. Well, my final point is, because I am keeping it short, is that I've just done a big read through a lot of the things that have been written over the last five years, sometimes by UN bodies themselves, sometimes at academic conferences, um, well, let's say academic conferences, sometimes by, you know, other organisations that are interested in this field. And, well, when I stopped laughing over most of it, quite honestly, I think they're not really making any progress because their situation is so illogical. You get people turning up at conferences and being allowed to speak and they'll and they'll be saying things like, um, well of course, you know, it was the evil Western colonel colonizers who told everybody that there were men and women and before that cultures didn't agree that there were men and women it's you know it's a, a western colonial cultural imposition but then like a page on they are detailing and saying we desperately need help to stop um say in our country the traditional cultural patriarchal and religious ideas 
which mean that women are badly treated and particularly the one I've just been looking at, lesbians are particularly badly treated. So you've just gone from saying that we didn't know any about this before because it was imposed by the Westerners to saying, well, we have long-standing, terrible, you know, indigenous <laughs> religions and culture in our country, which had imposed all this anyway, you know, um, and we need help to fight against it. Most strange. So it's all very, very illogical. And if you start reading through it, you know, it's it's comical. But just finally then, if you're looking at any of this, two things I've learned. First of all is that we must fight against the odd words they're using. They are causing us a lot of problems. But it's interesting to see that particularly lawyers and a lot of UN organisations, they haven't moved on and they... They haven't got any real arguments, so they just throw these strange words at you. So they're always using the word intersex, and intersex doesn't exist. But they're using that to challenge this sex binary, men and women. They use this word trans, but they never define it, and trans doesn't exist, you know. <laughs> but they so, say, well, because trans, you know, um, well, explain to us what trans means then, and maybe we could try and understand what your argument is. They um, use all the other words, you know, transgender, transsexual, cross-dresser, all, all sorts of different words. But also, they even when they're all sitting around chatting to one another and sort of being in agreement... They can't decide on the alphabet soup of letters they're actually going to use either. So one speaker uses LGBI, and then another one uses LGBTI plus XX and everything like this. So again, you can very quickly unpick holes in all of this because you can say, well, that speaker said one thing and the next speaker said something else. And even some speakers say two things in the same, you know, in the same presentation. So what are they actually talking about? So we need to continually fight back against these words. And I think the lawyers are particularly vulnerable because they are just spouting out these words in the place of serious legal argument. And as soon as you say, well, intersex doesn't exist... So what are you, you know, so what are you talking about? Um, but then the final thing with dealing with them, oh, and I've lost my train of my train of thought a little bit about it. <laughs> what was the final thing I was going to say? Um, give me a moment. Okay, well, we need to keep on putting in our shadow reports. We need to keep on engaging with the UN from our countries. So we keep we need to keep on keeping it real, okay? And taking these opportunities to set out how things actually are in our countries um, and the problems that we see with what you'd say call standard human rights for women. Uh, you know, and forget about all these this other nonsense. UN, you work for us, hopefully. You should be concerned about women's access to political power, their access to finance, their access to decent health, giving them better laws, more money, organising the justice system better, helping them get away from violence and abuse. We really stop, you know, going on and on about all this stuff that when you scratch a little, you can't even describe. So I want to say to people, do not give up on the UN and do not give up on these sort of semi-public um, organisations which are looking at human rights. Spend our time constantly reminding them that there are all these basic human rights and women, they should be working actively on giving women 
their proper share of them. So that's what I wanted to say. We're moving on now to our next speaker, and we're going to listen from Anne Kalvik from Norway. She will tell us about, as I said before, gender, faith in Norway, the world's most equal country. Because uh, Anne, she's a former professor of religious studies, and she has been an activist in the women's movement for over 30 years, as well as politically active, active on the far left. But she had to resign for her university position in protest last year after years of smear campaigns against her due to her belief that sex is binary, immutable, and that women have sex-based rights as Sue, we're going back in a circle to the beginning, Sue was explaining uh, to us at the beginning with the CEDAW convention. Um, um, Anne is 51 years old, she's married, and she's the mother of five. So congratulations for all those highlights and <laughs> milestones. And over to you, Anne. I realized when I heard uh, the, um, the description of my talk being uh, read out that it was quite a mouthful that I said I would cover. I'm not sure if I can uh, do, do it all, but I will try to speak rather freely about the situation in Norway and uh, <clears throat> about the, um, the situation that I have experienced as uh, an academic that had to uh, leave her work. Uh, and I also would like to present um, a book I published last uh, year. Yeah, I guess maybe it's, uh, is it in reverse now? You cannot... Uh, yeah, to me it is uh, like in a mirror, but uh, the book is called Kjønstru, Kampen om Rønda, which translates into uh, English as um, gender faith, the, um, the fight or the struggle, or the fight uh, on uh, reality, something like that. However, the thing is that in the Norwegian language, we do not uh, separate uh, sex and gender in language. We have only one word, kjønn, which is actually good because then you do not fall for the, um, what has now happened largely uh, in uh, the UN, but also in, in uh very many different sectors of society that we kind of reify or uh, uh, makes uh, we make as an uh, a phenomenon of its own and with a reality as uh, material as sex the concept of gender and this was of course what what uh, sue was talking about as well and in Norwegian, when we do not have those two separate words for uh, the notion of sex, gender, uh, what we do when we speak about the social and cultural constructs surrounding sex, we do so by uh, adding words and making the words like into combinations. So we speak of, of sex roles and uh, sex ideals, uh, sex um, stereotypes. So uh, what happened in my, uh, in my uh, workplace was, as uh, mentioned, that there, was, uh, there were years of smear campaigns because I had been um, I had been uh, speaking publicly and writing publicly about the problematic uh, legal and political situation in Norway following uh, our erasure of sex in legislation, because this is the fact um, in uh, in Norway. We have since 2016 the world's most extreme uh, legislation on sex gender in terms of 
gender being a completely self-declared characteristic. So even a child as young as six years old can by declaration change legal uh, sex. Uh, of course, to most, to, to people um, in a different uh, situation or a different uh, epoch, this would sound like uh, utter, uh, utter nonsense, utter uh, craziness. And of course it is. But in the climate that we have, uh, it is uh, the, the fact, the, um, the status quo in Norway. Uh, what also happens is that, um, what do you call it in English, the uh, children protection, uh, uh, those who... who uh, uh, I should have looked up that word before uh, going uh, on. Maybe, uh, maybe somebody can have uh, can tell me in the chat. Uh, but you know what I mean when the state uh, goes in and takes over custody for children that are in need of help. Yeah. So uh, what happens in Norway is that they go in and they take children from parents if the parents do not uh, oblige or confirm to their um, their identification as uh, gender due to of course this uh, legislation and uh, due to uh, the fact that we have an extremely conformist uh, political situation Norway is a very small country uh, political networks are tight. Um, <clears throat> the press groups, the lobbyists uh, are wealthy and they have been uh, very um, successful in their uh, campaigning. Actually, the Iglio report, which is called Adults Only, and it was uh, published in... 2018, uh, I think, um, highlights Norway as one of the countries uh, where they, uh, with Igliu, um, uh, that is a uh, umbrella organization for uh, uh, LHBT plus youth organizations. And what they um, what they managed was to uh, convince youth politicians through the youth organization of Norway's main um, uh, gender ideology uh, organization called Fri. Um, their youth organization, Shaivongedom, uh, managed to uh, establish a very um, tight uh, connections to youth politicians uh, <clears throat> and they um, managed uh, by also avoiding public uh, attention which is it is uh, written out in this report it's uh, all of this is uh, like hidden in plain sight they tell exactly what they have been doing what their strat strategy has been and how it has been successful and yeah what what they managed to do in Norway was to change uh, gender legislation uh, fundamentally without the public uh, even uh, knowing and the women's uh, movement uh, was not invited into the hearings or into the uh, political process uh, at all uh, so we did uh, get, as I said, the most extreme legislation in 2016. However, in 2013, uh, Norway introduced uh, the empty concept of gender identity as a uh, characteristic uh, <clears throat> with um, uh, that was to be... Uh, 
into discrimination, anti-discrimination law, meaning that it was actually in 2013 that Norway um, uh, decided that sex doesn't exist because, of course, a, um, a consequence of saying that uh, gender is something that you feel, something that you choose, something that you declare, and that this is separate from uh, any diagnosis. It is a declaration model. Uh, this is uh, effectively, of course, um, uh, erasing uh, sex as a meaningful concept. All of this, I'm sure uh, a lot of you uh, already know, but perhaps not too many know that this has been <clears throat> such, a, such a success in Norway. And also uh, has been um, broadcasted to, to uh, the global audience as, as a success as something that uh, we do not have uh, argue, arguments about, um, that all are uh, in favor of this situation, which is, of course, not true. It is a horrible situation, and we see the consequences of it uh, day by day. And what we see is exactly what the uh, UN Special Rapport, uh, Reporter on Violence Against Women and Children, Women and Girls, um, Rem Al-Salem, which she has been uh, warning against, namely how women in the global north uh, have been and uh, are uh, victims of smear campaigns and are uh, silenced in the public for speaking out against this uh, utter madness. Uh, so this is the situation in Norway. If you do speak out against uh, this ideology and this legal, political, and social and cultural situation, you are, uh, you are deemed a uh, hateful person and uh, also, yeah, racist, transphobe, and uh, right-wing extremist. And this was uh, the reason why I had to leave work um, at last, because I was, um, I was sort of uh, accustomed to, so to speak, um, <clears throat> the social media and also the, the written media situation where women like me were um, characterized in, in these ways. But then you could say that, okay, these are opinions uh, that are uh, uh, published and one can, to a certain degree, uh, argue against these opinions. Uh, however, when the fact, uh, so to say, uh, that women uh, who know what a woman is and who know that sex is binary and immutable, uh, when this is presented, when, when it is presented as a fact that we are right-wing extremists in research and as a documented fact in published research, then <clears throat> it is a much tougher issue. And this was what uh, was done uh, in Norway, uh, in my university, uh, a uh, professor, a colleague uh, published uh, an article stating that very Norway and <clears throat> other Twitter accounts that she had been supervising uh, for a whole year, uh, she claims in this um, article that we are right-wing extremists, that we are a threat to, um, to fundamental human rights and to democracy itself. And so it was very difficult for me to continue at that workplace when this was just like... Uh, 
the top of a pile of uh, <clears throat> similar um, smear campaigns uh, in various media and social media. I did complain uh, against these false accusations, uh, but my university, um, uh, they declined to uh, give my complaint a, a full um, uh, treatment or, or, or to uh, uh, look thoroughly into uh, what our uh, complaint was about. So it was uh, kind of um, uh, concluded uh, even more strongly that uh, the women uh, that were uh, characterized like this in this uh, specific paper by this professor, that this was uh, uh, true and uh, ethical uh, academic work. So this is the situation of female academics in Norway who do not uh, go with the flow. Um, and to me, it is so such a sign of of great great um what is it called the deterioration you know when institutions have started to crumble actually uh what you can hear is that what the trans activists are uh posing against us that we are the threats and that the, the democracy is at stake etc well, this is exactly what we do experience, uh, but it is uh, kind of complete, uh, completely incompatible uh, worldviews. And now I will uh, uh, go on to talk about the book, I guess, because this is fundamentally about worldviews and whether you could have an uh, objective outlook on on life and uh, existence at the same time as you say that a subjective outlook uh, and conception of what is real is as real as the uh, objective reality uh, at the same time and in the same relation now of course this is a total breach with uh, everything that we know from uh, basic formal logic, but this is an extremely illogic and irrational movement, as I'm sure you are all aware. Uh, so, but this is why I had the, uh, the, sub, um, the subtitle of the book as being, yeah, I didn't manage, I, I didn't really think about how to translate that uh, subtitle, but that it is a uh, fundamental fight uh, uh around how basic reality uh what is basic reality is um is what i tried to to uh convey in that uh, title now uh yeah assault on reality i see in the in the chat uh so what i did i Actually, I did have a contract with a normal uh, publisher. Uh, but as uh, time went by and I uh, gave them my manuscript, I, uh, I noticed that they were more and more reluctant. Uh, and finally, I asked them, Are you, do you really want to publish this book? Uh, you must tell me uh, straight because I cannot wait. I am in a hurry. This is urgent matter. It must be published this fall. Uh, it should have been published years ago, you know, but uh, so I, I would not wait. Whereas the um, publisher kind of, I think, wanted to wait uh, <clears throat> to publish it until maybe the tides have turned and, and uh, the public opinion where would be more uh, receptive so that this would not be controversial. But I knew and I know that we will not be there for years to come because the trans activists and the gender identity ideology has managed to, to uh, influence 
all of Norwegian society and I fear perhaps more profoundly than in any other country. Um, so I said, I will terminate the contract and they agreed. I guess they were actually relieved. Uh, and I tried to send the manuscript to uh, a whole lot of other publishers, but nobody wanted it. And so I ended up, uh, I had to publish it myself. And I guess this is also uh, a well-known situation for many women and female writers. So I I made my own um, uh, publishing uh, company or uh, publisher called Medvit Forlag, which translates consciousness publishing or something like that. Uh, <clears throat> and then uh, what has happened uh, in the media is that it has received yeah a, a rather mixed um ha had a rather mixed reception but mostly positive one uh, very fierce uh, uh uh text telling that i was uh, i should not be listened to and i was not to be trusted but the overall impression is that uh the, the media has not wanted to talk about this book. And when I say that, this is also, of course, very familiar to any author, I guess, that you do not get the attention around your book that you would like to have. Uh, but the, the special um, situation surrounding this book is that it was kind of uh, a national uh, news story that I had to leave my professor position. Uh, so this was kind of uh, uh, a narrative to, to uh, that went along with the book. Uh, and um, as, uh, as it was said, I have been uh, a political activist and a quite outspoken academic and uh, uh, a women's campaigner for 30 years. So I wouldn't say that I was a celebrity, but my name was known and uh, my uh, take in this uh, gender identity ideology uh, issue was well known. Uh, and it was also a well-known fact that Norway has this extreme legislation and that this is a very uh, controversial issue. Mostly in Norwegian media and Norwegian public, one does not want to discuss the, um, uh, the um, case itself. Is it possible to, uh, to have subjective uh, reality uh, as uh, orienting us uh, in the same time as we uh, as we orient us around objective uh, reality, um, so there it would be natural to assume that uh, the book would be highly debated, but it has not been because one does not want to debate this because if you start to debate the concept of gender identity, uh, you will lose because it is an empty concept. It is a circular definition. It is a feeling uh, pointing to a feeling. Uh, so it uh, uses for the start of the definition what it is supposed to define. So uh, circular definitions, normally we do not use them as the means to uh, produce new, uh, new laws as the means to, to produce new uh, ways of uh, medically treating uh, vulnerable people. Uh, but this is what we do in Norway and elsewhere in the world uh, now. And in those cases that one does give gender identity some kind of um, content, it is, of course, by uh, pointing to gender stereotypes because there is nothing else to uh, relate it to. And then it's quite obvious a reactionist concept. So 
anyway, uh, this is uh, too too hard for people to handle. It seems it's more um, uh, for the time being. It's more uh, convenient to uh, to uh, kind of swallow the pill that the trans activists have been given the whole world that this has anything to do with uh, sexual orientation and the liberation of uh, or the right to love person of uh, both sexes. Uh, of course, it is that negation of sexual orientation. Uh, but this is uh, one does not want to discuss it. But what I did in this book, I um, I start out by uh, sketching out the current situation, and then I write about language, of course, because language is extremely important, and it is even more important in a uh, movement that believes that words and language is more real than material reality. And then I have the chapters um, describing and analyzing what is happening in the legal field. And there, as Sue uh, explained to us, I also uh, use the UN uh, Convention on, on Women. And I also look at the, the recommendations and how the later recommendations as to how to interpret the convention uh, are um, presenting a false narrative that suddenly men are part of this uh, convention. But I also then show in that uh, chapter how uh, utterly undemocratic the process has been uh, when uh, getting the laws rewritten. Uh, which they are in Norway and uh, in a very, very high speed, at, at a high speed, and uh, uh, more and more laws uh, as a consequence of the law, um, actually of, of the law from 2013 when gender identity was, uh, was a, um, what do you say, uh, concept uh, worthy of... Um, anti-discriminatory um, protection. Uh, and then I have a, a chapter on um, treatment, med the medical uh, side of it, which is also very, very tough reading because of course I'm, I am not, uh, I'm not a legal expert. I'm not a medical expert. I, um, my expertise is in religion. But what I do is I analyze the text that have been written and that are communicated about these fields. And I mean, as grown-ups, we are able to read and decipher texts. And so I, I look at what are these texts actually saying? What, what kind of, what worldview are they conveying? And uh, so this could be called like more methodologically a, a discursive take, but yeah. And then, uh, continuing from uh, uh, the legal field, the medical field, I go to, uh, let me have a look, um, who, who have been the uh, prominent uh, actors and network in, um, uh, in Norway, and how has academia contributed and even uh, fueled what we uh, are experiencing now? And then uh, chapter six, I look at how media has uh, completely uh, failed their, um, their, their mission or their, uh, what is their duty, namely to, to um, see when uh, abuse of power is going on, because they have been um, more or less trans activists uh, altogether. Uh, and the way they have treated prominent feminists in Norway, like Tonje Jevjon and uh, Christina <clears throat> Ellingsen, who you know from uh, VDI, uh, is also uh, analyzed here. And then finally, I have this last uh, and the longest chapter, which is about religion. 
and because this is kind of maybe more what new I could bring to the table as a religious scholar. Uh, and I do show that these concepts and uh, world views and uh, views of what a human is uh, are <clears throat> profoundly uh, religious uh, or spiritual, metaphysical, um, and that that is actually okay. It's okay to have a religious worldview. We have uh, the freedom of uh, uh, of belief, freedom of speech, of thought. Uh, but what I I discuss and criticize, of course, is that it is not recognized as religious postulates. It has been um, uh, turned on the head and uh, figures in all fabric of society and our culture as uh, objective reality. And so this is also what I uh, what I try to uh, suggest as a way out of this uh, mess. And here, uh, Christina Ellingsen has been a, a most uh, valuable um, uh, colleague to discuss with. And I think she was maybe well, one of the first to sort of identify and discuss the subjective uh, faith uh, concept uh, of the gender uh, identity um, belief. Uh, <clears throat> and so uh, I, I try to, I suggest that uh, this is how we can move on from here, allowing men to, who, would like to believe that they are women, allowing them to believe it, but they cannot, they cannot uh, command any other person to believe it. And they cannot uh, let this infringe on other people's uh, freedom of uh, thought and freedom of religion and belief and speech, etc. But of course, this is not the situation we have. Um, yeah, and so so this uh, in this chapter, since I was uh, particularly a scholar of uh, new religions, new age, uh, it has been interesting to see how much of this worldview and uh, uh, view of of human life uh, is yeah kind of new agey um, on. Um, uh, when when thinking of this uh, subjective uh, turn, uh, but uh, in contrast to the New Agers or these uh, spiritual people, uh, they never claimed that uh, their worldview should rewrite the laws and should uh, punish other people and should uh, be uh, predicative of the procedures for uh, altering the body, etc. Also in this, I will now uh, finish, I see my time is up. In this chapter on religion, I do give a lot of space to porn and prostitution and surrogacy and uh, body modification practices around the world. I do counter the belief that in other cultures they uh, they consider uh, gender, sex gender, uh, to be extremely variegated. It has to do with uh, sex gender roles and for men uh, in particular. So, so it's in itself it is quite a wide <clears throat> field to cover. So, um, yeah, I. What I also, I can uh, conclude by saying, maybe not very uh, uplifting for you, but kind of uplifting for me, or I see that we we must just uh, think new uh, and in fresh ways. Those who have been welcoming my book are the Christians. So the Christians do enjoy my message and they do not do it because it is like oh in accordance with the bible because i do not write from a christian uh, point of view they know that but what they do say and that i i believe is that they want rationality and scientific agenda back into school and uh, norwegian uh, legal system etc of course there are for, from a um, women's rights uh, point of view, there are uh, obstacles and problems with the, the uh, with certain Christian groups, of course. But it is 
extremely interesting and uh, to see that uh, those who you thought would embrace uh, a critique that that puts up material reality and uh, power analysis etc uh, that uh, they would um, would embrace it that is the the, the left the women's movement uh, academia they they don't not in norway they uh, they abhor people like me uh, and those who want to speak to me and uh, those with similar views uh, like I have are religious people. So there you go. And uh, it's quite a chaotic uh, situation. And uh, the world is a mess and uh, Norway is a mess. And what we do see is that uh, women's rights uh, and uh, that women's, what women have uh, have gained in rights is so easily taken away when uh, other claims are being made. And this is exactly what is uh, happening.